for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Um, okay, there's a few people in here who already know something about Nate Saint, because there's some math people in as well, so hopefully I'll, um, won't, won't, be too, won't be too far off, off the mark. Um, so, Nate Saint... Um, it's, I'm going to use his story um, and the story of, the, of, of the story that people will know mostly about him associated with others um, and try and apply some of the lessons learned from, um, from the experiences that he went through. Um, he may not be someone that you're particularly familiar with. You may have heard that the story that I'm going to relate to you, um, but he may not be a name that you're particularly familiar with. Um, Many of you know that I and others um, in here, Martin and Al, well, not Alkaline, but Martin, uh, work, work for MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Um, and Nate is someone who also worked for MAF. Um, he worked as a pilot and a mechanic for MAF in the 1940s and the 1950s, living and working with his family in Ecuador in South America. He was just an ordinary guy, um, and I'm sure he would be one of the first people to say that he's not a hero of the faith he was just an ordinary person who loved jesus um and considered himself someone who loved god was had a deep conviction about the call on his life and about where god led him to be led him to be he believed what the bible said about jesus what he what jesus has done for us and he was passionate about sharing the gospel wherever he went and whoever whoever he was with whether he was a child whether he was uh, sharing his faith with senior officers when he was in the army doing his service in the Second World War, or, as we'll discover, when he was actually working with Amazonian Indians in Ecuador. Um, One of the main reasons I've chosen to talk about Nate is that he believed that if you really believe that Jesus has saved us, that that has consequences and implications for the way that we live our lives. For him, that was the most, what, for him, the most important thing was his relationship with his Heavenly Father and living his life in light of that relationship. For him, nothing was too great a sacrifice to make for the gospel. And on the 8th of January, 1956, this is the spoiler at the beginning of the sermon, um, at the age of 32, he and four other missionaries, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, and Roger Uderian, were killed by members of the Waudani tribe in Ecuador a tribe that they were attempting to reach for the gospel and with the good news of Jesus. They all knew the risks that they were taking. They all wrote individually about the possible consequences of reaching out to a tribe that was notorious for their savagery. Um, they, um, in Ecuador at the time, the Shell Oil Company was doing a lot of exploration, and this tribe were, killed a number of government officials and Shell Oil employees, as well as their rival tribes. Um, And the philosophy of these five is probably best summed up by probably the most famous quote to come out of this whole experience um, from Jim Elliot, who was one of the five. And his quote says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I know this this quote has been taken out of context sometimes and used to say that everyone should go and give up their life for the the gospel and all be martyred. That's not where I'm going to go with this sermon. You'll be pleased to know. Um, But... What he's saying here is that giving up something that we can't keep for something that has eternal significance is important. So a lot has been written about the event of, of the, the martyring of the, of the five guys from the States. 
um, the impact it had on their families, on the Waodani tribe, which I'll come on to a bit more in a minute, um, and the number of people who have been called into full-time Christian work. Um, their story went around the world and has um, certainly inspired thousands, maybe more. I don't think we'll ever know. Um, but I do know that, for example, in MAF, many of the staff um, in the organization have been inspired by this story and the events that are surrounding it. There are a number of books that have been written about it. Um, the one that I've read for this one is uh, Jungle Pilot, which was Nate Saint's um, biography. Through Gates of Splendor um, is probably the most famous one written by Elizabeth Elliot, who's the widow of Jim Elliot. Um, and they've even made a movie. Um, through the End of the Spear is the one that they made few years ago um, and it's based on Nate Saint's story written by his son Steve who we'll meet later. Um, so my aim today is not to tell you details of the story because you can find that elsewhere um, but to look at Nate's life a little bit and to challenge you about the way that you think about your life, your response to Jesus and what he has done for you. So Nate Saint was born in August um, the 30th, 1923, near Philadelphia in the U.S. He's the seventh, he was the seventh child of eight um, of Christian parents who, the parents were not well off, um, but the father, um, their father designed stained glass windows um, and apparently spent time in Canterbury looking at the, at the, uh, at the cathedral there. Um, and they were, they were pretty strict upbringing, um, but out of that, four of the kids ended up in full-time Christian work. And by his own admission, Nate wasn't particularly a great student at school, was more interested in typical boy and doing lots of other things, but he had a, a mechanical mind and loved to fix things, and he became a Christian when he was 13, and even at that early age, he was on fire for the gospel. And while he was when, when he was 13, he was asked to give a devotional talk to his youth group at church, um, and one of the things he said, his mum kept a diary of some of the things that he said, and this is one of the things that, that she wrote in the diary that he said, at 13, that being saved, I have a purpose because Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is why I'm passionate about working with youth, because they get it. Um, you know, just because they're not, haven't done all the education and everything, um, they, they know what the gospel's about. Um, and even at this early age, um, Nate had got it. Um, but when he was 14, um, he was struck down with um, a medical condition called osteomyelitis. Now, my wife isn't here, so I couldn't ask her what my osteomyelitis is. So I've had to look at Wikipedia, which apparently it's an infection of the bones. Um, and in this case, it affected his legs. Um, and this would, have a great, this would have quite a significant impact on, on the direction that his life would take. Um, and is, is an example that, that we all know of how God can use what seeming to us are negative circumstances um, for his good. Um, so his older brother, one of his older brothers, Sam, was an airline pilot. And the young Nate was keen to follow in his older brother's footsteps. He had a talent for working with anything mechanical and dreamt of one day becoming a pilot. It was now the middle of the Second World War and Nate volunteered to join the army in 1942 in the hope of becoming a pilot and taking advantage of what he considered to be, in his words, the golden egg of $25,000 worth of pilot training that he didn't have to pay for himself. Um, something that I did as well. Um, he worked his way through all the assessments and the basic training and was accepted onto pilot training with the army until, and until halfway through the ground school phase of his pilot training, his osteomyelitis returned um, and he was grounded and wasn't allowed to fly anymore. 
this was a big blow to him. He really felt that this was the direction that God was taking him. And because of, he already had a mechanics license, so they put him on to working as a crew chief or the head mechanic um, flying, working on Dakotas, which were passenger aeroplanes taking troops from the States across to Europe. So this was a real time of searching for, for Nate. Um, he'd really felt that flying was the thing he wanted to do. He was still um, flying, um, doing his pilot, private pilot's license. Um, so he was really searching. Um, and it was during this time that he, he really had an experience of, of, of God calling him into mission work. So while he was, although he was still flying, um, he left once he'd finished um, his time in the army um, he was definitely felt a call to mission but didn't quite know how that what that worked how that what that looks like um, and but he'd been in contact with an organization called the Christian Airmen's Missionary Fellowship um, which later became MAF and on leaving the army he applied to go to college to Bible college for a couple of years however before he was able to start that MAF contacted him and said that they'd been praying about him for a long time and, and wanting to know how God could use him. And they'd just set up a fledgling flight program, their first ever flight program in Mexico, and within a few months of starting, they'd crashed their aeroplane and ripped the wings off, which is a bad thing. Um, now, they were trying to work out how they could get um, the aeroplane fixed, and the first person that came to mind was Nate. So they called him up, and he put aside his desires to go to Bible college and then spent three months in Mexico living in a shack, basically working to repair the aeroplane to get it back to flying to um, condition where it could fly using almost anything that could come across him. Even one of the struts on the undercarriage on the gear was held together with an old bit that he'd salvaged from an old Ford um, pickup truck um, just to get it flying. We're a bit more than that now, aren't we, Martin? <laughs> Martin's our safety manager, so that's why I'm looking a bit nervously at him. Um, but he did it. He got the aeroplane flying again. Um, and on his, on, on his return from Mexico, he finally managed to enroll in, in Bible college. Um, but as a recurring pattern, he didn't even finish his first year. Um, he received another call from MAF. Um, this time, because he now had his pilot's licenses as well as, as his mechanic's licenses, they asked him to go and set up a flight program in Ecuador. So they'd already started in Mexico and they wanted to expand further. So he and his fiancée, um, Marjorie, um, Farris, as she was then a trained nurse, um, they decided that this was God's call for them both um, as a married couple. So they got married um, on Valentine's Day, 1948. And shortly afterwards, afterwards um, they began the process of moving to Ecuador. It was really pioneering work. Um, it wasn't, they couldn't just arrive and, um, you know, on um, American Airlines and find the house and everything was, that was there, there was nothing. So Nate flew the aeroplane down with all of their supplies in the back of the aeroplane and they had to build the airstrips. They had to build their own house from scratch. They had to build a hangar for the aeroplane. They had to build the workup from MAF, for MAF, of MAF from nothing, supporting the mission community that was based in Ecuador. However, God richly blessed them and their work and their family grew um, with the arrival of um, Kathy and Steve that you can see in the photograph here and another son, Philip. Um, and I've got um, some early footage of, of them, it's just a couple of minutes, just to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of the airplanes that they were flying, the places that they were working and the kind of things that, that, they, were, that they were doing. And there's no sound with it. Um, 
to okay to start. So, so it's all silent footage that they that they took while they were there. So this is the aeroplane that Nate um, was flying, a little Piper. I don't know who this. I don't know who this is. Um, who's the, the medivac? But it's the kind of work that. Um, was instrumental to them you know a lot of the, the missionaries they were working with were living in the jungle you know a week's worth of canoe ride away from the nearest medical aid so the, the advent of an aeroplane um was was critical to them being able to reach out into other places where otherwise they wouldn't have been able to go um and this is how people got around without an aeroplane walking canoes that kind of thing Um, and this is a, a radio that they would use to communicate back to main base. There was no batteries or solar panels or anything, so some poor guy had to sit there cranking the handles to make it work. And I think this is Marjorie, I think this is Nate's wife um, working on the radio. So they would call in every half an hour whenever they were flying, something that we still do um, in MAF, and would sort of say this is where we are and this is the position and this is how things are going. And cutting down bananas. Um, but Nate never lost his um, passion for reaching for mission and reaching out to the lost. You know, we saw what, how the kind of thing that he was saying even when he was thirteen. And for a number of years, um, living in Ecuador, stories were coming out of the Ecuadorian jungle of a secretive and notoriously savage tribe of Amazonian Indians, um, variously called the Orcas, um, A U C A, not as in the whale. Um, the Waodani or the Harani, um, they were said to be completely unreachable. Um, they wouldn't tolerate contact from outsiders. Um, they were incredibly um, violent um, culture. I've, I've seen statistics of 80% of the, the 80% of people who died was was attributed to to killings from other tribes. Um, that's just the way the way that their that their, their culture worked. Um, We've already talked about the fact that they killed they killed shell oil workers. Anybody from the outside that was seen as a threat to them were not tolerated. Um, so Nate, Jim, Ed, Roger, and Pete secretly worked on a way to reach these people, and the aircraft was instrumental in being able to do this um, because they were so isolated. Um, over several months, they slowly made contact with the Waodani people, um, dropping gifts out of the aeroplane as the aeroplane would fly over. And after a lot of searching, they eventually found a place where they could land this small aeroplane on a sandbar next to the river, um, a landing place that they then called Palm Beach, which you'll, I'll refer to again in a minute, next to a river, about four hours' walk away from the village where these people were. And they slowly started to make contact with them. Now, all seemed to be going well, and they made an initial contact with, 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 um, with some of the people from the tribe. Um, three of the guys would stay on site on the, be on the beach, and Nate would fly the aeroplane home every day because they didn't want the aeroplane to get stranded in case of a flood. However, after less than a week of initial contact, this tra tragedy struck. Nate flew out to the sandbar on one Sunday, and the guys held a Sunday service together one morning, and he made his regular radio call back to Marge at 2.30 in the afternoon and said he would call again in two hours to tell her that he was safely airborne again, flying back home. But the call never came. And the wives endured a long night of uncertainty on the following morning when another MAF pilot was able to fly over the area where they were and confirm that the five of them had been murdered. You could see their bodies floating in the river. 
and the aeroplane had been completely gutted. All the fabric had been stripped off the wings and it wasn't, you know, it was completely unflyable. The five had been murdered by the Waodani tribe. Little was known outside of the immediate circle of friends and, um, and work colleagues of what was going on. They'd intentionally tried to keep it secret so that the authorities wouldn't, wouldn't get involved and try and persuade them otherwise. Um, and that had been critical in them actually being able to go out and achieve their goal. Um, this is just some pictures of, of them actually on Palm Beach um, and some of the original initial contacts that they'd made with uh, some of the Waodani tribe. Um, Secrecy had been critical. However, it was as soon as it was thought that they were likely dead, um, a search party was sent in on foot, and it took them four days of trekking. There's some army guys to actually get to the place where they were um, to confirm that the bodies um, that these guys had been killed. Um, news quickly spread of what had happened, and the, an American Life magazine heard about it and wrote a big article, which then brought the news out to the rest of the world of, of what had happened. And the picture here on the, on the left is of um, the leader of the party, an American army major, meeting with the, the five wives of the guys who had been killed. And you can see they've all got young children, all got young families. Um, and I think probably because, because of how young they were and, and because of um, the nature of the work that they were trying to do, news very quickly spread around the world. Um, and made international headlines. This is a, a, a magazine in France. Um, for those of you who can read French, um, it's um, also running exactly the same story. Um, from the outside and from a non-Christian perspective, it, this seemed like such a waste of life. Five promising lives of young, young men who were on fire for the gospel, who were reaching out to an isolated tribe to bring the good news of Jesus following that call from Matthew 29 that, that we know and believe is our call to, to spread the good news of Jesus around the world, um, let alone the impact that it had on the families and all those people that left behind. And yet, this is so much more than the story of just five people who died. Um, it, and the story doesn't end with five bodies lying on a beach in the Amazonian rainforest, because it's not the story of five young American men being killed in some remote part of the Amazon jungle, Yes, that's how it appears, but it's God's story. It's the story of God's desire to come back into relationship with us as human beings and to restore that relationship, the work that was started by Jesus on the cross. Um, and a clue about this can be found in something that Nate wrote in um, a letter shortly before he died, writing back to the, the head office in, um, in the States. And he said... And people who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives being missionaries. Um, that was their context. I mean, for us, it can be anything that God has called us to do. They forget that we too are expending, they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. He was on fire for the gospel. Um, and when we're following God's call, we're also part of this plan. We're part of God's eternal and long-term plan for humanity it's God's plan and it's the plan that has eternal significance and for him it was the will of God that was the was, was the most important thing and this is a comment from Elizabeth Elliot who was Jim Elliot's widow and she said that Nate knew that there was only one thing worth expending one's life for the will of God being part of God's plan following God's call for our lives so I'm not I'm not saying for a second that we should all go out and intentionally get ourselves killed or we're all going to end up in martyrdom. But for each and every one of us, God has a plan for us. 
and there's an important principle that we need to be available and willing to to be part of God's plan and it's because it's not just about us it's all about it's all about him um and this quote i think from jim elliott sums it up it says the will of god is always a bigger thing than we bargain for but we must believe that whatever it involves it is good acceptable and perfect so however uncomfortable it may be for us to say to god okay i'm going to go where you want me to go just please don't send me to africa in in brackets god's will is always acceptable good and perfect and does so does god have a plan for you in his will you bet he does scripture is full of examples where god shows humanity the plan that he has for them god tells the israelites numerous times that he has a plan for them jericho sorry jericho um jeremiah 29 he tells jeremiah that he knew his his plans for him before he was even in his mother's womb david tells us in the psalms that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and god knows everything about us before we were born Paul writes numerous times about God's will for us, examples such as Romans 12:2, Ephesians 4:23. But probably the clearest enunciation of this is in Ephesians 2, chapter 10, and I've taken the quote from the New Living Translation. How do we know God's um, and it's the fact that we are God's masterpiece. I love that. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, and this is it, so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So God has a plan for us. He has a will for us. And we, as Christians, need to be pliable enough to be able to um, be willing to accept God's will for our lives. So how do we know, then, what God's will is for us? Um, God speaks to us all in different ways. And I'm going to quickly look at three principles that I think are important in us knowing what God's will for us is in our lives. Um, The first one is a bit of a tricky one. it's it's what um, I'm going to use the, the phrase desert experiences because it's modeling that the experience that Jesus had before before he started his ministry where he spent 40 days in the desert. So I think that God sometimes takes us through desert experiences or tough times to concentrate our minds and our hearts on him to take our mind off what it is to teach us that it's not all about us. We all know that, that it's in the tough times that our faith is refined jesus was taken by the holy spirit into the desert for 40 days to prepare him for ministry you can find that in luke 4 and nate had a similar experience that i mentioned earlier on he wanted to fly and join the army to do so but god had other ideas for his time in the army and it was during his time as a mechanic when he was really searching for god that his faith was being tested that his calling became clear to him i think many of us can testify to similar desert experiences the result of them despite how painful they can be is that it helps to reset our priorities and to put God back at the center point of our lives. The second one is our attitude. It's how we respond to God. Um, and I think our heart atti- attitude is critical. We need to have hearts that are soft and willing to be, to be um, changed and molded by God. It's, it's the idea of the, the the, the, the phrase that they use in the Bible, the analogy they use in the Bible about the, the clay, the clay and the potter, and being able to be shaped into into how God wants us to be. We need to be able to surrender our lives and, and wills and allow Him to rule. We need to get our place in the order of things right. It's not easy, and it's something that I know I struggle with daily, um, particularly when there's big things. Um, but we need to relegate ourselves and our plans and our desires to second place after God's will. And the third part is letting go. 
Um, and this is the one I struggle with the most. Um, and the irony is, as a Christian, I've already said to God, I want you to be cruel in my life. I want you to be number one. I'm going to give my life to you. And yet when the rubber hits the road, this is the difficult one. When we actually say, oh, OK, go on then. Um, and I guess it's it's pride for us, isn't it? But I think if, 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 if we can appreciate the fact that God's will for us is acceptable, it's perfect and it's good, then we've already taken the hard step. We've already said to God, okay, I'm going to give my life over to you. I trust you. I'm going to live my life according to your will for my life. Anything else subsequent to that actually shouldn't be that difficult. But it's, it's, it's when it hits the reality of our lives when we say, okay, I'm going to let you take me to Ecuador. I'm going to go where you want me to go or you know, whatever it is that God has called you to do. Um, so it can obviously it can be the hardest thing to, to, to give ourselves over and to, to let ourselves go where God wants us to go, um, to say that we'll live wherever he wants and to trust him for the consequences. Now, this is the tough bit because the Bible doesn't shy away from saying how tough sometimes it can be to follow God's will, to, to follow where he wants us to go. Um, and there are some pretty tough examples in the Bible. We can't, we can't hide away from that. Um, 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says for God called you to do good even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you um, that doesn't make for comfortable reading and I'm not apologizing for that because that's that's what the Bible is saying and there's a, a number of other examples um, but I I firmly believe that if, if we are following God's call for our lives yes it's going to be a struggle sometimes but I think sometimes we go through those struggles to to so that we can give testimony that's why it's so important on on sunday mornings that we're able to stand up and uh, and testify to god's goodness in our lives because it it helps to show others how god is working through our lives um also i think it the tough stuff shows that actually it's about him and it's not about us um you know if everything was easy we would end up being humans we'd end up taking the credit for it but when 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 the tough stuff happens we can rely on him and it forces us back to him um, and there's another, another, another great quote from Jim Elliot, um, and I, hopefully this can give you some comfort, um, because actually it's more comforting to be where God is in control and not us. So God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. So it's not about us. It's about God. It's his story. Um, and this kind of brings us back to the point that we mentioned earlier, that it's not about us, it's all about him. We need to be willing to be part of his story of redemption, his story of restoring the, his relationship with humanity. That's what we've been created for, is to be in relationship with Jesus. Just go and read Genesis. It's, it's, it's all there. We have no idea what God has in store for us and what part we have been called to play in his big story. We're not all called to martyrdom thankfully um but we are all called to play our part in god's big picture um for the five it was martyrdom however unpalatable that may be for for many of us but for us it's some likely to be something different it could be talking to a neighbor it could be just being jesus to somebody who's hurt or somebody who's in pain we've no idea the eternal consequence of our actions but i, I firmly believe that if we give our hearts to jesus he he will use us um, and the story goes on um, I'm running out of time um, back to the Waldani. Um so a number of the wives stayed on in Ecuador 
They are examples to us of the clarity of the call that they had to follow God no matter what happened. Marge Saint, Nate's uh, widow, stayed on for a few years and was involved in a number of ministries with women's prisons and so on in Ecuador. Um, And this is another article from Life magazine reporting on the fact that some of them stayed on. Um, The story of the Waudani, the tribe um, that were involved, doesn't end there either. Two and a half years after the attack, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim, she's the lady pictured here, and their two-year-old daughter... Um, moved to live with the Waudani. They were invited by the tribe through a number of amazing, um, what we would say coincidences, but God incidences, to go and live with the Waudani tribe. And she lived there with her two-year-old daughter for two and a half, um, for two years. Um, and they were also accompanied by the lady at the bottom is Rachel Saint, who's Nate's sister who spent the, the rest of her life working with the tribe. And through the pioneering work of these two women, um, many of the tribe became Christians, including a number of those who were responsible for the murders of the five men. As I said, Elizabeth stayed for two years, but Rachel worked tirelessly with the, on the Waodani language, and it was through her efforts and others that the New Testament was translated into their language. And she died in 1994, um, having spent the whole of her life working with these people. Um, and the story goes on. I, I mean, I, I, this, I just think this is amazing. In, in June 1965, um, the bottom picture here is Kathy and Steve Saint, the eldest two of the, Nate child, of the Saint's children, being baptised on Palm Beach, where their father was murdered by two of the men who murdered their father. That's the power of the gospel, just right there. Um, so less than 10 years after they'd killed these children's father they were baptizing them in the name of jesus in 1995 the waudani people invited steve saint his wife this is the the son of nate and three kids to come and live with them and help develop the waudani church so they spent this is the the top two color pictures they spent um a year working with them developing um contacts between other tribes um and I don't think there's any way that anybody would have known that this is where the story would go. Um, we would not have been able to foresee it, and perhaps it would maybe, you know, we don't know how God works, but it may, might not have been possible without the death of those five young men. We'll never know. But there's no way we could have predicted what the outcome would be. Um, and I'm going to f- kind of finish off by showing you um, a video and leaving the last word of this to someone else. forces about God's story. Hi, I'm Steve Saint. Sixty years ago, right now, God began writing a story that deeply, deeply impacted my life, as well as that of other families and hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Five forces about God's stories, generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. The story that God started writing 60 years ago was a story about my dad, Nate Saint, and four of his friends, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCulley. And he started to try to make contact 
contact with a really violent tribe of Indians living down in the Ecuadorian Amazon. These people had been harassed by the Shell Oil Company and had been killing oil company employees trying to keep those employees from entering into their territory. The Shell Oil Company had gone to the Ecuadorian government and convinced them that if they wanted the Shell Oil Company to find oil, that together they had to get rid of this problem. So Dad and his friends decided to try to make a contact, a friendly contact, before efforts were made to try to wipe this small tribe of violent people um, out. In the process, Dad and his friends were killed, but that's only the beginning of the story. A few years ago, I was traveling with and that we call Grandfather Minkai, one of the members of the tribe that killed Dad and his friends. And uh, while we were traveling and speaking with uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a uh, contemporary Christian musician, a journalist from the USA Today gave me a call and said, uh, you know, I'd like to interview you. But then he said, but first I want to ask you some questions. A USA Today editor, when he was interviewing us, said, you know, I can understand possibly forgiving the man who killed your father, but he said, but loving him, that seems almost morbid. And you know, it would be if it wasn't true. But the answer to why and how something like this can happen is really very simple. It's God's grace and the power of his word. My dad and his four friends were willing to die rather than to kill the Waurani uh, when they were attacked. They all had guns and the Waurani had spears. Um, so I figured as a little boy, well, my dad must have loved the Waurani. And after dad was killed, every night when we'd meet for family devotions, my mom would pray for those people that had just brutally killed my dad and ruined my life. And then, a couple of years later, Mom told me that my Aunt Rachel, who was like a second mother, my dad's sister, and uh, Aunt Betty, who wasn't really my blood relation, um, but called her Aunt Betty anyway, Aunt Betty Elliot, that the two of them were going to go in and try to live with the same people that had just killed Dad and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim. And I thought, what a dumb thing to do. They'll just kill Aunt Rachel and Aunt Betty, too. But Aunt Rachel and Aunt Betty went in, and they weren't killed. But I knew that Aunt Rachel loved those people enough that she was willing to die for them. But by the time I met them a couple of years later, I was convinced that these were the most special people on earth. Why would my dad and his friends be willing to risk their lives and then not try to defend themselves when they were attacked? Why would my mom go on praying for them? And why would Aunt Rachel be willing to risk her life unless these were really, really special people? You know, I thought as our conversation, my conversation with the uh, journalist was winding down, I thought, you know, there's an old saying, hurt people hurt people. Well, maybe it's also true that forgiven people learn to forgive people. Um, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians that I, I thought of too and it made me feel bad because that journalist really wanted to know if this man that, that I was traveling with and, and rooming with and I loved was the same man who had killed my dad 
and his four friends. And I had said yes, but I had misled him. Uh, oh, he looked like the same man and had the same general personality, but he wasn't the same man. Let me explain. Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, it starts out this way. If anyone is in Christ, or our young people might say into Christ, if, if anyone is into Christ, he is a new creature. Instead of going back and finishing the verses in regular English, let me try it. I'm going to read it to you in Hawaiian Pidgin, a language which you'll understand, although you probably have never read it. In Hawaiian Pidgin, 2 Corinthians 5.17-20 says, That's why, whoever stay tight with Christ, they one new kind of guy. This is a real language. Old things no day no more. Look, the new things went come. All that stuff it come from God. He went bring us back the same side with him. What Christ went do, and now he tell us for work so the other people can come back together with him too. That's our objective. If you're a Christ follower, that is our commission from Christ. We were brought back the same side with God after we had strayed. And now our objective should be to try to bring other people back the same side with Christ. Oh, I don't mean forcibly, but to share the good news, the gospel with them, so that they have a choice to live peaceably with God. Father Minkai has told me a number of times and others of the men who killed Dad uh, and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim, after they became Christ followers, and, and don't get me wrong, not the whole tribe became Christ followers, but those people who did became Christ followers, they actually began teaching me, when I was living with Aunt Rachel, how to become a Christ follower. It really is true. If anyone is in Christ, they become a new kind of guy. Conscious, I'm, I'm, I'm over time now. Um, if, if any of you um, would like me to pray for you, I'm very happy to. I'm going to finish in prayer now. Um, if you feel like you're going through a desert experience or that your heart is hard and you want it to, you know, to feel that you, you want God to mold your heart and to be willing to be part of His will, um, then please uh, come and pray with me or pray with Graham or pray with anyone else in, in, um, in leadership in the church. We'd, we'd be delighted to do that. Um, but I'm just going to I'm just going to finish. In, but I'm just going to finish in prayer. Father God, thank you for um, the amazing power of of the gospel and the good news that you bring. Thank you that you go to extraordinary lengths to bring us into relationship with you, to restore that relationship with you. Yet you sent Jesus, Father, your own Son. And in light of that, almost nothing can be too small for us to give, Father. And I pray that you will, um, over the next few days, just be working gently on our hearts, Father, to make us um, pliable and willing to uh, search out what your will for us is, to, to see what part we can play in, in your great story. Thank you, Jesus, for, for loving us and uh, for sending Jesus. Amen.